This is Press Publish, a weekly conversation about journalism, technology, and the media business, where we talk with the people building the future of the news. I'm Josh Benton, director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, and this is episode two. My guest this week is Karen McGrain. She is a content strategist and a user experience designer. She's worked with a lot of media companies, New York Times, Condé Nast, The Atlantic, Time Inc. She has a great new book out called Content Strategy for Mobile. It's one of my biggest worries about the news business that its leaders might be underestimating just how quickly smartphones and tablets and other devices will become the dominant way that their audience consumes their content. Mobile isn't just an afterthought anymore or an add-on to a desktop website that you can treat as your real product. It really is the future. And Karen's book is all about preparing for that future as a publisher and how it's about more than just making a pretty mobile site. It's about re-architecting the back end of your content making sure you have the workflows and the tools and the approaches that you're going to need to present your work well across multiple platforms. Here's our conversation. Karen, let's talk a little bit about your your background. You've done a lot of work with a variety of media companies. Uh, just talk briefly about how you, you came to do the work that you do now, how, you, how your career has gone up to this point. Sure. So I, I think I'm one of the few people in the field that actually has a graduate degree in this stuff. I studied technical communication at RPI, which is an engineering school, and focused my studies on human-computer interaction, which honestly, uh, I can't imagine a better foundation of, of academic study for someone who then went on to become an information architect and content strategist. So when I graduated um, with a master's, I was one of the first user experience people, the first information architect hired at Razorfish back when the company was only like 30 people. Mm -hmm. And I spent uh, almost 10 years there leading the user experience group. And I, I, if I do say so myself, I think was instrumental in helping to grow user experience as a practice and particularly to you know, to bring information architecture as a field or a discipline to, um, to at least that, that consulting firm and a lot of, you know, I, I think it took off a lot in consulting firms, digital firms on the East Coast. And then even though Razorfish had content strategy starting in like 1999. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and honestly, it's like I am so grateful that some of the work that that I was able to do in information architecture and interaction design was so closely informed by being able to work with content strategists all those years. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was one of those things where I'd about, I think about 2004 or 2005, I looked around and was like, hey, wait a minute, like, we got we to gotta do a lot more content strategy. And so at that point, I was running the user experience group. And I, I, I banged that drum pretty hard for, for a good couple of years trying to evangelize content strategy as a practice that was really complementary to a lot of the other UX disciplines out there. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. Well, let, let me back up for our listeners who may, you know, who may not know what content strategy is or, or may have a, a perception of it that I, I was uh, reading someone on Twitter just the other day who, when at, at the mention of content strategy said, well, isn't that just editing? Isn't that uh, just writing? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so for, for, a, for a journalistic audience, how would you define what content strategy is? So I think in in the digital space, content strategy is a field that recognizes that content has uh, a, a need for overall um, processes around the creation, the maintenance, the management, and the governance of what that content does over time. And I think, you know, in the digital world, when I got started, most of the sites that we built were really static. They were almost like brochures online. Mm -hmm. Over time, I mean, obviously, that's not how the web works anymore. We have content management systems. We have social tools that allow user-generated content. In most organizations, they have dozens, if not hundreds, of people who can create content and somehow put it out there in the public, you know, on somewhere on the web. And so you, you realize that there just aren't um, good long-term practices in place for many organizations to figure out how do they know if the content's doing its job? How are they going to keep an eye on that content over time and you know, not just have everything that anybody has ever wanted to say on the web cluttering up their website? How do they organize and sort of manage 
all of the different people who are creating content and how do they use technology to facilitate that? I think right now a lot of content management technology really forces people to work the way the tools work. Right. And one of the things that I'm a big evangelist of is like, hey, this is user experience 101, guys. Like, we should be defining how we want to work, what our content model is, what our workflow is, and then design content management technology and workflows and interfaces to meet the needs of the people. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's interesting to me that your answer on on defining or your what you just said focus so much on the the time element because I think you know for for news organizations, particularly for daily news organizations, it's very easy to think about well, this is what we're producing for right now for the audience you know the shelf life is something that has been sort of you know historically was shifted off to the news librarians who maintained all that sort of stuff um would you say that the 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 content strategy work that you're doing is are they are that the field more broadly does really focus on that how does this content provide value over a length of time and and less so on you know how a home page is optimized how you know content chunks are defined in 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 real time well, I think – I guess in my mind, those two things really go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I think for many organizations, the techniques that we use in content strategy to optimize content for a longer-term life cycle are, are, are in many ways the same tools that you might use to make decisions about what's going to happen to optimize the content, say, on the homepage or on a landing page at a given moment in time. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the same choices around – who has control, who has authority, what's the metadata behind it, what is the content model that will support that kind of the, the, your publishing goals. And I think I, I, I think I do like to emphasize time in that I think for many publishers, the, the focus on the present moment is a legacy of print. It's this idea that, great, we're going we're gonna to lock this down in ink on paper, and then that moment's going to be gone, and we're going to move on to the next moment. Right. That's just not the way the web works. I mean, or, or more to the point, if you also start planning now as you are publishing for giving your content a future life, you will get more value out of it. And it's, that's work that is not always terribly difficult to do in the moment, but you have to plan for it. Right. And, you know, I, and I just think organizations, whether they're, they're news publishers or magazine publishers, they would do well to, to have some content strategy behind that. Sure, sure. And it's one thing that I've been, I've been trying to think about a lot recently of, you know, we think of, uh, you know, sometimes if you want to find out about a, a sporting event that occurred uh, a week ago, uh, the, what might pop up first in, in a Google search might be the preview story before the game occurred, which still lives on on the web and, and has a you know, it still has its unique URL and, and still has its own status, even though it is all about, it is a, a story designed to have an expiration date in terms of its usefulness and figure out ways to have connections between stories on a particular topic or a particular beat or, or just a particular story that evolve over time and iterate because our production schedules are tied to here's a chunk of content. Here's another chunk of content six hours later with new information. Here's another chunk three days later. Uh, it's hard to figure out ways to mesh those together so that you're end up you're providing the most useful content for your user. Yeah, I've seen or you know heard of of lots of organizations playing around with that kind of content chunking for news stories, trying to communicate the thread of a longer term story like Syria, so that that a reader can get the most up to the minute news, but also have a more guided editorial experience that will allow them to to look back in time and kind of understand the scope of it and you know my my take on that is that content strategy would really look at two pieces of that which is first to figure out what's your what's your goal here what's what is your business plan how would you plan to make money off of this and then second what is the underlying infrastructure that you would need to put in place to make that happen? What do your editors have to do differently? What does your technology have to do differently? And I think what what's great about content strategy is that the people who are good at it are able to to understand the the business goals, the editorial goals, and the the underlying technology to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there seems to be have, have been remarkably little progress on on even simple things like having metadata to show that this story is an update on this story, or that this story is connected to another story in a way other than it's another chunk of content that's you know maybe in the same category in a CMS or something like that. Yeah, I think uh, having worked with a lot of publishers, I think 
some of the traditional tension between editorial and publishing is also mirrored in some of the tension between editorial and IT. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's unfortunate because all those things really do have to work together. And, you know, I, I've, I've talked to people on the editorial staff of publications who are openly hostile to the idea of having to think about business value or, you know, think about the the underlying strategy of how something's going to make money. And it's, it's like, I get it. I, I know where that comes from. But, but people like me who have been working on the web for their whole lives, it's like, we don't have that luxury. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you can't do your job without trying to anticipate how it's going to affect the bottom line or, or provide business value for an organization. And same thing with IT. It's like, I, 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 I understand why there's some hostility or tension between editorial staffs and IT staffs, but those are the two groups that I think should be working much more closely together. And, you know, that's one of the things that, that I see in my role as somebody who can come in and kind of speak the languages of both sides and try to try to help them build a system that will actually do what their, their users want it to do. Right. Right. Well, your book is entitled content strategy for mobile. So we should probably talk about mobile. Um, the, uh, in, uh, the, on the first page in the introduction, you say that, uh, mobile in this sense is while it, it's less that your, your goal is to to help create a content strategy for mobile specifically and more to use the rise of mobile as an opportunity or as an excuse to rethink the way that your content is structured so it can be used on mobile platforms and all the other platforms that are already here and and coming uh what is it about mobile that that you think provides that opportunity or that that reason why publishers should be thinking about how they structure their content well i think that one of the the real challenges that publishers continue to face is the, I think it's the, the sometimes unspoken belief that they think there really is still a primary platform. Like they think there is still a real place where their customer is supposed to consume their content. And, and that place is print. And, you know, it's like, all right, I guess if you want to read it someplace else, we'll let you. But they, they're not thinking holistically about their publishing processes. And so what we've seen is publishing processes that are still geared significantly around print and making, applying all of the editorial judgment and styling and control to one platform and then having to go back in and strip all of that out and try to reformat it for another platform. Mm-hmm. That's that's why you've seen, I think, and it's anybody, everybody's seen this on the web, where you have beautifully designed and styled print editions, and then they're literally, their their production workflow is literally to copy and paste the text from InDesign or or InCopy and dump that into you know sort of barely styled text that sits in an, you know a consistently generic template on the web. Right, and that makes me sad. <laughs> And in some cases, you see that even when the primary uh, platform in their minds isn't print, I'm just thinking of the daily since it, as we're speaking, it, it, uh, it shut, shut down, was closed, it was announced a few days ago, uh, a publication that even though it existed only in tablet form, at least at first, didn't have a print uh, analog, but still had a lot of print thinking that went into the way that it was structured. Exactly. I think that I think that's the root of it is that there's still a lot of print-based workflow and print-based mindset. And I think that's been okay in, or that's, we've been able to duct tape and band-aid this, this workflow together in trying to get content from print onto the web. But in trying to get content now from print onto the web and then onto what will, what is necessarily going to be a wide range of different devices and platforms, different screen resolutions, different device capabilities, that's just not going to work anymore. I mean, it's, it's just, and I, th- I think the publishers are saying that now, that their attempts to make mobile or t- attempts to make tablet be like print aren't really working either. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think mobile is going to be what I, I'm hopeful will make some of the smarter organizations go, oh, wait a minute. We are always going to have to get our content into a variety of different formats. What can we do to set ourselves up from the start 
to ensure that our content can render as appropriately and as meaningfully as it as we want it to on every platform. It's thinking differently about what it means to structure content, what it means to encode meaning in our content. We can't just rely on visual styling that we intended for print or for, for one platform because it's not going to carry over to other platforms. So instead, we've got to think smarter about how we structure that content from the start. Right, right. And, and when you're in the book, when you describe the, the steps that a publisher who, who is thinking about that, that, that transition or that, that set of priorities, uh, one of the, the, the key concepts that you talk about is blobs versus chunks, which I got to say is a, it's a uniquely unfelicitous sounding phrase. But uh, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about what, what those two terms mean in your mind? So I, I'm tempted to say that, that blogging uh, moved user-generated publishing on the web ahead by a decade, but has really set us back in terms of thinking about creating structured content. Hmm. I think a lot of organizations have moved towards you know, what, what gets referred to as the WordPress model or the Dreamweaver model, which is let's just have a giant field and let's dump whatever we want in there. We can dump HTML and WYSIWYG formatting, um, you know, it's like you can make, you can change the font and make it purple sans and float it to the right and put images and slideshows, whatever you want in that giant blob of stuff. And it's like, what happens to that when it's time to take that to another platform? And it's like, your, your beautifully styled blob is going to look great in the one context you were imagining when you created it, which was the desktop try to put that on mobile, it often turns into this, you know, unreadable spaghetti of code and developers are kind of saying, oh yeah, you've got to go in there and strip all that out. But, but that there's meaning in that. Like that, that was somebody's job was to go in there and, and, and put that in there. And so the, the blobs versus chunk idea is that instead of encouraging content creators to have this giant blob of, of stuff that they can dump whatever formatting they want into, we should be set the ability for them to create clean, structured chunks of content where we've gone in and we've modeled our content to say, okay, we need just these fields. We need just this metadata. We're going to guide our users toward entering the content in just the right way. And then we can take those chunks and combine them and recombine them in whatever way is right for the platform. And style them. We make we push all of the the presentation and styling decisions further down towards the platform, because the platform is going to be smarter about how that that particular chunk should should look and be interacted with um, than it would be if if we were imagining only one platform when we created it. So so to to use an example, so instead of there being you know at the way in a in a blogging platform in WordPress or movable type or whatever, one big field that everything goes into, you're you're saying there should be that that the headline is obviously separated out from that, but uh the, the photos that appear in that, the the, the structure that is within uh, a story or a post, as well as all the thing that's around it, should be delineated out into definable chunks so they can be rearranged for use and and amplification or or diminution on various platforms. Is that Roughly right? Yeah, I think if, if people are familiar with Tumblr, I think Tumblr is actually a great contrast to a blogging platform like Movable Type or, or WordPress. Tumblr has what I would call a content model. So what they have done is they've gone in and they've defined a handful of content types. So yeah, you can, you can enter a text field, but they've also said, we think our content authors are most likely to want to add photos, audio files, videos. They even have a, a, a content type for a quote. And when you go to the input screen for that, they ask for just the right fields. They have, they have very carefully thought about, okay, what is a quote really? They've also done a really nice job of saying, let's make it as easy as possible for somebody to upload a picture. Let's make it as easy as possible for our content creator to, to find and, and upload a video. And that interface, that guidance is really powerful. Uh, and the challenge is that it's constraining. I mean, if you wanted to, say, create a slideshow on Tumblr, you couldn't really do it. But, I mean, or you, they could create a new slideshow content tip if they wanted to. But if you want to do the handful of things that Tumblr does really well, 
it does them better than anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for a lot of organizations, it's just saying, okay, let's figure out what our content types are. And and the thing is, I think pub, you know, it's like publishers could do this. This is they they're many of these publishers are all or publications are already really well structured. Let's have content management systems that do each of those content types really beautifully and cleanly. And then that way we're going to be able to do, have more flexibility across platforms. So that a, a, you know, a, a, a 80 word brief about a shooting gets a different input treatment than an 80, 80 inch, uh, big feature that appears on Sunday page one. Exactly. I mean, okay. I've, I've looked at content management systems from publishers where literally every content type is using the same, input interface so an article all of the different styles of articles get the same input interface as a slideshow so there's 90 fields on that screen and the content author has to go in there and kind of know which fields they're supposed to enter for which which content type or they have to go through kind of a cumbersome flow to do things that are somewhat unexpected you know unusual content types and it's a it's a pain right I, I mean, to me, what's, what's so frustrating about that is, like, that's your business. Like, every minute that you have one of your employees fighting with technology is wasted money because that's, that's time that they're spending fighting with a badly designed tool as opposed to creating great content that's going to make you money. So, But how does the, the chunking idea go, go to let's, – let's talk about a, a relatively traditional news organization, a newspaper that's trying to figure out its, its presence online. Um, most of what they produce are chunks of text, paragraphs, series of paragraphs. You know, they, they vary in length and maybe in, in, in type, but you know, you're, you're, you're still talking about a range of, of chunks of paragraph. Is there anything within, you know, from the first word of an article to the last word of an article, you know, I, I see where art gets chunked out and, you know, maybe uh, some other structural elements, but does it make sense for, for that, that sort of structure to be applied within the 800 words of a, a typical, you know, decent sized newspaper story? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think it, it's like, I don't, I don't want anyone to walk away thinking that there isn't a giant blob for the full article text. Of course there is, but the, the challenge is to say, okay, what, additional chunks might we need so for example one of the the things you see most often and somewhat hilariously is news organizations having to truncate their headlines on mobile so you just get the first you know few words of the headline and then they drop in an ellipsis now this is just bad okay this is just bad editorial and i i I can criticize the the interaction designers who didn't allocate enough space for the headline in the the design of the mobile website or the app. But I could also go back to the editorial staff and say, hey, maybe you should cut more than one headline. And having a shorter form or a longer form or a SEO optimized form versus a more colloquial form, having different sizes of headlines that you could combine and, you know, either join together or separate out, you have more flexibility there. Same thing with things like summaries. So I use NPR as an example in my book. They cut two different summaries for each of their stories, a short form and a long form. And that just gives them more flexibility. They can, they can display the article summary in different ways in different places. They can put that on the, the landing page. They can put that on the mobile device. They can put that in the sidebar. They can put that on Facebook or Twitter. And I think the, the, the goal when you're thinking about these chunks is to say, how do I create a flexible system of text elements that's going to give me the most options as I'm out where all of these things might need to appear both on the desktop web and on all of these different devices? Right, right. I was thinking about this uh, yesterday because uh, Patrick LaForge, who's a, a presentation editor at the New York Times, uh, he tweeted yesterday, writers wonder why editors trim stories in the online report. Answer, reader patience online is even more precious than newsprint space. And I thought that was, you know, when we think of, of you know, 
the the if you think ten years ago when people were talking about putting things online, it's like there's no shortage of the space is not a constraint anymore. There's no shortage of electrons. We can just put whatever we want out there. And, and I know there was a boomlet of interest earlier this year around responsive text and the idea that you might actually embed uh, sort of, you know metadata within that big blob of an article text so that it can you know accordion up and 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 down depending on the the device that it's on or the platform that it's on. Is that something that that an area that you think we're going to be talking more about? Is that something that you see any organizations doing smart things about of making it so that the text itself uh, and not just the things around it uh, shift from platform to platform? So I think that I, I, I'm always so amused by all of the conversations about responsive content because they are, they're, they're developer centered. They're <laughs> right. Success to have a summary appear here and then have the full text expand. To me, all I can think is like, well, that's an editorial and a content management problem. I mean, it's like, yeah, CSS can do that. That's great. But until you have human judgment around where should this article be cut or where should this summary fall, and until you have the right tools in the CMS to make that happen, all of the conversations about what responsive content is are really just technical proof of concept. So do I think that that's, uh, that's a potential venue? Sure. I think there's going to be lots of experimentation around how we can produce shorter or longer forms of text. Uh, I think in the, the idea that, that, for example, text gets you show just the first introductory piece of it and then things can expand for a, a larger view. I think one of the challenges there is encouraging people to write so that the initial lead to the story is actually communicative. I think journalists probably do a good job of this. I think most other people who write on the web do a terrible job of this. Uh, but that's the tyranny of the inverted pyramid. You're, you're, that's, you know, I mean, yeah, journalism does that very well, but it also is very limiting in, in the kinds of content that you produce. Yeah. And so that's why like to, I talk about chunks and suggest, hey, maybe you should write a, a summary, write a deck that where you very clearly are stating what the point of this article is so that you're not you're not having to rely on using the first sentence or paragraph of the article to explain what it means. Mm -hmm. However, that in some cases, you know, maybe, maybe that doesn't work for somebody's workflow or some organizations won't do that. And if you're, if I guess if you are going to have to rely on the first sentence or two of your text to provide a summary, and if that might be truncated or used as an, in the navigation context, then it's really important that you make sure that the main ideas are are included in that first sentence or two. Yeah. It, it, I think this gets at the the tension that I think goes throughout your book and throughout all the discussions around around mobile in general, which is you, you're a, a strong advocate in the book for content parity across platforms that you, you, you may think as a lot of, and I think business websites fail at this a lot. They, they, you, the mobile version of the website only does a certain subset of the things that the full version, the desktop version does. And it's inevitably not the right subset of things because people want to do all sorts of things on their phones or on their tablets. But at the same time, if you want to optimize for those devices, inevitably you have to be making these decisions about what makes it and what doesn't. So on one hand, I know, I think I would be very frustrated if I read a New York Times story on my desktop and then I pulled it up on my phone and it wasn't the same story. But yeah. at the same time, if you don't start thinking about that, you're, you're inevitably thinking that one decision for that, for that, that content is going to be applied across platforms and you're going to be losing out on the possibilities of optimizing for different devices in different situations. Yeah. I think, I think right now I see a lot of organizations in beyond publishing, whether it's financial services or healthcare, um, legal. I see them really hamstrung by this myth that they should be publishing different content on mobile, shorter content, content that, you know, is, is differently prioritized. And they're they're paralyzed because they think, oh, we have to do something completely different and they don't know what that is. And so they stand, sit around debating what that should be for a long time. And my recommendation to these organizations is to say, first order of business, let's just try to get your content into a format that is accessible and readable and browsable and navigable and searchable on mobile. 
And it doesn't mean that you won't prioritize things perhaps a little bit differently, um, is particularly if you can articulate a clear use case for why why that should be different. And it doesn't mean that you can't come up with different approaches for optimizing that content for mobile in the future. But for most organizations today, I think they're missing out on on a real opportunity to communicate with people who might only ever access their content on a mobile device. And so it's like the time is now to just get your content out there. And then once you have it out there, then you can get gather some real data. You'll be able to see real people interacting with it. And then you can make smarter decisions about how to tailor it for mobile in the future. Because mm-hmm. this is one thing I think is particularly challenging for, for news organizations because Rightly or wrongly, there's there's the homepages of of you know significantly sized news organizations are so information dense and there's so much stuff on there that I find at least when I go to a mobile optimized version of a news website, I'm always taken aback by all the things that I know I could be getting in this other context that I'm not getting here, and it, it, it seems like article pages are are a lot easier to, to to conceive of the transition because there's an article like there's there's you, know, there's, you know, a phone is a certain width, like there's a, a column of text, like there, there are questions, but it, it seems a much easier set of questions than figuring out what landing pages and home pages are going to look like, particularly for, for these news organizations who have, you know, go look at nytimes.com and, and see how many, how many damn things there are to, to click on. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's a myth that people don't want to read on mobile. And so the text that we publish on mobile should be shorter. And I, I do think that's a myth. I think people's, if, if, if it's something someone wants to read, people's level of engagement is every bit as high, if not higher, on their mobile device than, than it would be if they were reading on the desktop. But I do think that people's patience for navigating on mobile is significantly less. I don't think they have the same patience for clicking around, trying to see everything that's out there. And because the screen real estate is so constrained, you, you, you're right. You just don't have the same opportunity to, to push as much stuff at them or, or give them the full scope of what's out there. And, you know, I, I think that's the challenge of attention that you see just in, in everything digital. And it may be something that we just have to accept that the the primary way that that users are going to be accessing these stories is going to be by directly linking into an article page and they might not ever see scope of whatever you had on your, your business section front, for example, unless they specifically sought that out. Right. Right. And that, that reminds me, I want to ask you about sort of the, the worst practices that you see of, uh, from news publishers. There are, there are so many, but the worst in, in my mind is when you click on a, a link to an article, say in social media and Twitter or something, and it, automatically mobile redirect redirects to the mobile homepage. That is by far the single most frustrating thing any publisher can possibly do to me. Uh, when you look at, at what news organizations are, are doing online uh, on mobile, like what, what are some of the, th- the biggest mistakes and most common mistakes you see? I think, you know, when I look at mobile today, I see, I see the early days of the web, really. It's that you're getting, you're, you're getting text that is just dumped into a template without really much care or planning as to what, what the right experience is going to be. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the mindset that says, I guess if you want to read this on your mobile device, we'll let you, but we don't really want you to because we're too busy worrying about laying out the print edition. And so I, you know, I see a lot of things that are just broken. Navigation's broken. You can't read the images or the infographics. Um, Things get, cut off in weird ways um it's it, it it just looks like somebody I, I, i'd say it's like you just told the robots to go into the database and shovel out whatever content they found in there and you're missing the 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 attention to creating that great reading experience on mobile and i know it's challenging because there's so many different platforms but if you're planning right now to structure your content in the right way, then you'll have an easier time in creating a good experience for whatever platform you're trying to design for because you'll have a base of content to work from. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, in the book, you don't 
uh, make a, a lot of strict, you know, one size fits all rulings on on some of the big mobile questions, you know, app versus web versus both, or uh, having a, a mobile uh, optimized site, uh, a separate mobile site versus using going responsive. I'm, I'm curious, just in general, if you narrow it to the publishing world, to the news publishing world, in most cases, is responsive design the 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 approach that you would recommend for uh, a news site that is thinking about how to approach mobile? So. I think I, I, what I think is that, and I think many people would agree, that responsive design is one technique that we can use. It is a great technique. It is not the only one, and there are lots of good reasons, pro or con, for why you would choose to use responsive or why you might choose to use separate mobile templates and, and optimize at the server level. And a lot of those go into technical details that that I, I I'm not really qualified to, to get into I think for lots of news organizations responsive is going to be a great strategy for a couple of reasons news organizations more than than many other companies that I see do already have in some sense this kind of structured content I'm talking about they, they probably do already have a CMS that is gathering you know a head and a deck and the article body and some metadata. So that gives them some breakdown to work with. And news organizations probably do want to publish essentially the same content, all significantly all of the content that they're publishing from the desktop onto mobile devices. And so figuring out what to exclude on mobile or how to reprioritize text on mobile is actually easier for a lot of news organizations because it, it's it's a little bit more straightforward. So I think that's one reason why it's a it's a smart, efficient solution for a publisher who needs to solve their mobile problem right now. Right, right. I mean, I've been thinking. I'm working on a redesign for for Neiman Lab, and for article pages, responsive seems like the obvious the obvious choice for us. But for for home pages and a couple others, I'm wondering whether. Whether something some other strategy might make a little bit more sense, just because the I, I do sort of worry about responsive design, sort of pushing pushing web design in general towards a sort of single column flow flowable approach, and which may not be the the right thing for every every circumstance. Yeah, I I think one of the reasons that responsive has taken off so much is that it allows us to solve the problem on the front end, and we have more control over the front end. If you want to consider other alternatives, like optimizing server-side, your CMS has to support that. And a lot of content management technology today doesn't support that easily, or it's going to take a lot of custom development to get it there. So, you know, and, and I, I, it, is, it is in no way me suggesting that there's a problem with responsive design to say we also need to fix the back end. Because a lot of these problems really will impact the way that our editorial teams work and what content they can create or how that content is structured, what decisions and business rules they would put in place to say, send this content to the desktop and send this content to mobile. And all of that is going to require us rethinking how content management works for, for true multi-channel publishing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I enjoyed uh, in your book was the the very strong argument that you made about uh, how we should not differentiate to the same. You know, mo- mobile usage is not as different from desktop laptop usage as as some might think. That we should aim for content parity, and that eventually, as more people become mobile only users, they're going to be accomplishing a lot of the same tasks on their mobile devices that they might otherwise, you know, five years ago have been doing at a desk or on a laptop. Uh, I'm curious, though, given given that. You know what are the 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 ways in which mobile user behavior differs from desktop laptop user behavior within a publishing context? Like you know, you've looked at a lot of research. What and obviously it's going to vary from outlet to outlet. But you know, in broad strokes, how how do people uh, interact with news sites differently on their phones or on tablets? So I I, I do want to emphasize that for most organizations, um, I think that it's a myth to assume that their mobile user is wildly different from the desktop user. In right. fact, 
your mobile user is your desktop user. They just happen to be using a smaller screen at the at that particular moment, but their tasks and goals and mindsets are are very much the same. So. That said, um, there is a, a fair amount of discussion about wanting to optimize the experience for mobile use or for the mobile context or to try to understand the reader's context of use and, and dynamically serve things differently to him or her. And I think that that's an interesting area of exploration, but it's one that I'm, I'm actually a little bit twitchy about. I would rather see organizations invest in in content parity and in getting equivalent content right. Do that right before they start playing around with how they tailor the con you know the content for the context. Right. So people give lots of examples like you know, I'm I'm a New Yorker, so it's likely that I want to see you know I, I want a different priority of information on the homepage or, or on landing pages to be presented to me during the hurricane. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's, it's a scenario you can hypothesize, but would I put a ton of investment into trying to second guess what my user wants? I, you know, I, 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 you know, whenever I hear that, I'm kind of like, you know, that, that seems at this exact moment in time with not a lot of data to support it, it seems kind of hubristic on the part designers and developers to say, we're going to guess what you want and then we're going to give it to you. Be bad like that. Well, to, I would, to be fair, publishers are pretty good at being hubristic. <laughs> As are web designers and developers. Yes. Uh, you know, so I, it's like, I would rather put all of that effort from our design and development teams into saying, let's make this as navigable and browsable and searchable as possible. Let's make sure that when the user comes in here, he or she can find the content that's desired instead of trying to guess what they want and then dynamically serve it up to them. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think of uh, startups like Circa and uh, Sumly, Circa in particular, since they're taking your, your chunking advice uh, to, to the extreme. Uh, the idea that, uh, I mean, I, I almost think like they're sort of uh, a, a specific content strategy model in a Objective-C app wrapper. <laughs> like they're, they're saying, we're going to take the news of the web slice it up into into these forms that we think are going to be useful, whether that's algorithmically, like by providing a summary, or whether that's manually by having this, this editing screen full chunking that, that Circa does. I'm just curious what, what you think of them and whether it's something, an area that you think news organizations should be exploring. So I'm, I'm always delighted to see news organizations experimenting and exploring with different, exploring different forms. I you know the way that Circa describes themselves, it 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 seems to rest on the idea that that the mobile user doesn't have any time. You know, it's like let's right. cut off this garbage and just give you the, the the five bullet points that you need to understand this story. And that, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I think there 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 are undoubtedly users out there who who just want that that summer view, but. I think it rests a little bit on a myth of how mobile users read, and I, I think it, it you, you betray that every day when you observe your own behavior on the phone. I personally enjoy very much reading long articles on my on my smartphone, and I've read whole books on my smartphone. I don't think that I I don't think that the idea that all a mobile user will consume is one screen is something that we should be using to guide our decision-making processes. In fact, mm. I think we should should embrace the idea that this very personal, intimate, always-with-us device can be a fantastic experience for reading if only we put the same attention and care to structuring the content and styling the content as we did for other platforms. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I'm, I've been trying to think a lot more lately about 
why people read news, why people uh, go out of their way to consume this information about subjects that they may or may that that in ninety plus percent of cases will have no impact, no direct impact on their lives. That, that it's not you don't read news because you're going to have a, a list of action items that come out of them. In part, you read news because you enjoy narrative storytelling, even if those stories are in you know they're not Philip Roth novels, but nonetheless, there's something about that that. That is pleasing, and and one my reaction to 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 Circa in particular has sort of been that, sort of adding this this layer of need to know, where the reason why people are reading it is not a need to know reason. I suppose the same sort of some people want to, or a lot of people I think want to immerse themselves in a story, even if it's a short one. Yeah, I think the the power of being able to use this device to stay informed or be entertained in a down moment is it, it's very compelling. I think that's why you see the success of, of read it later apps like Instapaper readability that, you know, you, it's like, I always think of that as, as it's like a little present to myself in the future. And I'm so happy when I found some long form article that, that I want to savor and I can, I can save it to readability or Instapaper. And then, you know, next time I find myself waiting in a long line, it's like, Oh wow, this is delightful. (laughs) Or (laughs) alternately you can, you can just click that button and then ignore it and still feel like you've interacted with it, even though you know, you will never go back and get through that Instapaper queue. True. Or, or start feeling like in addition to declaring bankruptcy, I should also declare readability. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, thank, thank heavens they don't have a, a big, uh, you know, a bubble that says you have 543 unread articles. Um, well, uh, let me, let me, last question I want to ask you, uh, you know, th- there are a lot of journalists who are unfamiliar with the idea of content strategy specifically. And, and, and I, I think there are a fair number of people, uh, who are, who are journalists who might be interested in getting into the field because there are a lot of former content producers, uh, who, who've moved into it. Uh, or also just to to know a little bit more about it uh, for their own usage inside a news organization or or a publisher, other than reading your book, which is a, a very good first step. You know, what what should a journalist who's interested in learning more about content strategy and thinking about these issues, you know, what are the where would you point them? So, I think the one of the fundamentals would be to embrace an understanding of how content can create business value for organizations beyond publishers. And I think it's, it's really thinking about the understanding the question of why, why does any organization have a website at all? What, what value are they expecting to get from putting information on the internet for people to find and being able to tie whatever your, your editorial goals are or your publishing model is to the underlying business value is probably the, the content strategist's most important job. And so in addition to that, I, I would tell anybody from, from journalism who is looking to maybe explore content strategy or, or think about that as another career option, it's really important to, to understand the underlying technology, understand how content management works, and understand some of the basic principles of information architecture and metadata and search, for example, understanding how the different chunks or different pieces of content fit together online and what the technology means for your editorial workflow or what it means for what's possible to do with the content. If you, if you can grasp that and talk intelligently about that and, and see how your content production workflow can adapt and evolve for getting content into digital formats or helping content be found or reused or get onto different platforms or devices, it's really powerful. And honestly, the web doesn't have enough people right now who can, who can do that well. So I think for, for anybody who's trained as a journalist and kind of understands content production and, and editorial process, there's, there's a lot of need for, for people to take that on in the, the, technologically driven world of the web mm-hmm. is that something that you think is is content strategy something that is primarily going to be done by folks like you or consultants who come into uh, an organization or a client uh, on in 
you know, on a contract basis and then move on some, somewhere else? Or is this, is this something that should there be, should there, should a news organization have a, an internal position whose title is content strategist? Or is that something that the capacity should be built in internally? That's a, that's a good question. And I think my answer might differ for news organizations or publishers versus other types of organizations. I think news organizations definitely need to have some roles and whether they call them content strategists or not, but have some roles that span uh, content editorial and IT and even editorial and publishing that can help bridge some of these gaps between what is it that we want to create and how do we make sure that we have the right infrastructure and oversight and governance model to make that happen. Within other organizations, whether that's, you know, retail or finance or healthcare, my sense is that most content strategy work should probably uh, take place in-house, which is not to say that as an outside consultant, these organizations shouldn't hire me. (laughs) They they took, Uh, but I think that the real work, the real day-to-day and long-term work of content strategy requires an in-house team. And there's, I think there are so many organizations that, that have such a need for better publishing processes. And it's one of those things where it's like there, there's a lot of expertise from the world of, of publishing and journalism that could be put to use in, you know, in banks and healthcare companies and and retailers to help them figure out how do they streamline their publishing processes and do a better job of connecting with their, with their audience or their readers. All right. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for talking with me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, that's episode two of press publish. Hope you found it interesting. Karen's book again is content strategy for mobile. It's published by A Book Apart, which is a great little small batch publisher of books about the web and digital content and other fun, nerdy subjects. So go check them out. Be sure to follow Karen on Twitter. She is at Karen McGrain. That's M-C-G-R-A-N-E. If you have any suggestions for Press Publish, how we can make it better, please do get in touch. You can find my contact information at NeimanLab.org. The Neiman Journalism Lab is a project of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, home of the Neiman Fellowships, Neiman Reports Magazine, Neiman Storyboard, and a lot more. Go find us at neiman.harvard.edu, and that is N-I-E-M-A-N, not like Neiman Marcus. American journalists, you are cutting it close to the wire, but we know you're good on deadline. January 31st is the last day for you to get your application in for a Neiman Fellowship. That's a fellowship that lets you come to Harvard for a year to become a better journalist. So get cracking. It's a really great experience. This episode was recorded at Walter Lippmann House. Walter Lippmann, who said, The private citizen, beset by partisan appeals for the loan of his public opinion, will soon see, perhaps, that these appeals are not a compliment to his intelligence, but an imposition on his good nature and an insult to his sense of evidence. Our theme music, again, is Missing You by Trash 80. Check back next week for another episode of Press Publish. But until then, always remember, disrupt yourself before someone else disrupts you. Thank you.